Hello, my name is Rick Tenenbaum, and I will be having a conversation with Mackenzie Reynolds for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is July 23rd, 2017, and this is being recorded at Mackenzie's home in Brooklyn, New York. Hi, Mackenzie. Hi. Uh, could you please introduce yourself and then tell me about where you were born and where you grew up and what that was like? Yeah. My name is Mackenzie Reynolds, and I'm 38, and I identify as trans and gender variant, and as a trans person who's had multiple transitions, and I use they and them as my pronouns. Um, I was born in Spokane, Washington. Spokane is, uh, it's not a rural place itself. It's the largest city between Seattle and Chicago, but it's not saying much because there's not actually that much between Seattle and Chicago. Um, and so it was a very, um, it was very 90s, 1950s style culturally, like felt very McCarthyite in a lot of ways. I moved around a lot throughout Washington while I was growing up, but I was born in Spokane and then I went to high school in Spokane. And in between I went to Richland and Everett, and my dad has lived in Seattle since I was nine. So though I grew up in Spokane, I also have these other experiences in Washington, primarily of other um, working class, primarily white working class neighborhoods and towns. Um, Spokane was pretty rough because, um, again, culturally very, very, like, old school. And so... Um, it was very, very Christian, normatively. So schools, I went to a public high school. We prayed in high school pretty regularly. Everybody was in all of the, um, all of the teachers were involved in a thing called Young Life, um, which was non-denominational Christian and met in schools after school days were over. And um, I was, I became Christian in the middle of that, of my own accord. My family was not religious growing up, but I needed parenting because I wasn't getting parented on my own. Um, so I went to church as a way of getting people around me and accessing love and care and also accessing some pretty material things. So I got food and clothes. Um, I got leadership development. That was very, very important for me. Um, it's also where I met feminism and where I first started hearing about queer people in a way that wasn't my high school or middle school friends calling you faggot when they were trying to like put you in your place. So I grew up not coming out. I didn't come out until after I left Spokane, um, but I was called bean short for lesbian for most of my high school time because I was vegetarian because I spoke out for queers um, and because I was feminist. So you could get like very, very, um, pigeonholed very easily and it would be used against you um similarly they called you like kami if you were like if, i know right <laughs> it's just very it was a very weird place to grow up um i i think i knew i was queer when i was in high school but i was very afraid of it so my earliest memories of dealing with my own sexuality and my own sense of um, 
something being up about my gender was that I went to the public library and found whatever queer books and feminist books I could find. But I would very, um, very anxiously and aggressively tell the librarian, you cannot tell my mother that I'm checking these things out. Um, and so I would just read books. The one I remember most is called Am I Blue, which is a, uh, um, it's a anthology, a short story anthology. And the, um, the title story, in the title story, a person wakes up and all of the queer people are blue their skin has turned blue. So there's no option of being out anymore. It's just everyone who was queer had to be out because their skin was blue. Um, and I remember thinking that that would be so great if everyone could just be like, if you couldn't be closeted anymore because everyone was sort of like forced to be honest about who they were, how about how much that would change the world um, because it would, it would make it impossible to be sort of strategically closeted um and i think a lot would have to change in relationship to that um anyway uh that's yeah so i didn't come out after until until i came to um until i came to college because of all of those social dynamics i also was living in a very abusive um environment and neglectful so i was very focused on getting out for most of my childhood. Yeah. Um, you said that when you started going to church in high school, mm -hmm. that's when you first started to hear about queer people yeah. in a more positive light? Yeah. Did you have a sense of queer community at the church, or was it just yeah. something that was brought up? Yeah, so my pastor then, um, she was part of a movement called the Reconciling ministries network or that's what it was called reconciling congregations then and then it became known as the reconciling ministries network this is in the united methodist church she was not queer um and in the united methodist church still um the the language is that self-avowed and practicing homosexuals shall not be ordained or appointed to serve in the united methodist church um but my pastor was part of a organization and a network that was fighting against that polity, the, 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 the church rules. Um, and so I got, I got sort of brought into that kind of work there. And that's actually how I came out eventually, is that I had become very, very involved and started doing youth leadership. Um, for a while, I was the national co-chair of an organization called Methodist Students for an All-Inclusive Church. Um, I started doing church uh church legislative work at both the local and the um jurisdictional levels so there's like different layers of of church governmental organization in the methodist church um and i got involved in that in part as a strategy towards changing these rules because when i was 15 i started pursuing a ordination in the United Methodist Church. I became what's called a candidate for ordination. Um, so I had, a, I had a sense in high school that it wasn't fair that people couldn't be ordained. And at that time, you couldn't even get married if you were queer in United Methodist churches. Um, and so I, I found that um, 
it butted up against everything that I believed theologically that we can't say that humans are good and then say that some humans are bad because of who they love. Um, was like how my early brain was thinking about it. And then as, especially after I left my, left home and went to college, I began to, to have more space to think about things like, why do I feel so personally wounded? Why do I feel personally attacked by all of this stuff going on around me? Why do I feel so personally invested in this ordination fight? Um, there's something more happening than is just that I'm trying to be somebody's ally. Like there's there's something happening at the like gut level that I'm really fighting for myself. So my coming out was like very much in this sort of like um, organizing sort of like intellectual way um which makes a lot of sense because I was pretty separated from my own body and sense of being in the world at that point anyway so it it it's totally reasonable that my my um head needed to get itself around an idea Mm -hmm. before my body could follow it yeah are you comfortable talking more about the separation of the body sure what what do you have a question? Um, yeah, what what did that mean for you? Oh. Um, how did it feel? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think like lots of survivors, I had um, very strategically shut down my body in order to like move through my world on the daily, and so mostly it just felt like I was ahead moving about the world and. Uh, um, and then as I started to build a world for myself that was on my own terms, um, politically, certainly, um, I started to be able to have inklings that perhaps it was okay to be in a body, um, in my body. And, um, perhaps there were things that I could learn from doing that. So I think, um, I came like when I came out as queer, I didn't start having queer relationships for many, many years after that still, just because my sense of um, what was safe to engage in sexually was like not, I didn't think that sex was like a safe thing to do. Um, I didn't want to lose track of myself or lose my sense of safety in the world. Um, and it was it was really by coming out as trans that I um, sort of unlocked some of those doors to sexuality because I think it helped me to be less fragmented even. Yeah. That I think there's a, there's a really clear, um, clear, what's the word? Um, Connection between, um, You know, when 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 the self is like portioned out, portioned out into different things, um, it's hard to to get a sense of like complete self or complete self worth or complete identity in any kind of way. Um, and I found that for myself, as I learned to name different parts of my identity, then I was able to integrate it, and then I felt less at war with myself and more like a person who was in control of living on my own terms and capable of building a life that was mine. Um, 
and those were the things that I needed to be able to engage in my body, but in just sort of like normally, um, but also in terms of sexuality and everything else too. Is there anything that helped you um, start to come to these realizations? Mm-hmm. Um. I think watching my friends playing in college was really uh, was really educational for me. <laughs> I didn't get to play a lot when I was a kid, and so I remember watching them and being like, "Oh, you're really just like throwing your body around like it's normal and fine." And um, and even other friends who are survivors who had like they just dealt with their their experiences their their past and their traumas differently than i had and had different abilities to move around in their body than i had i dealt with mine by becoming very very intellectual and heady and like um sort of like inner world ish um so probably i have a an ability to play in a like an imaginative way but it feels like very insular and I have a very hard time externalizing it um so watching my friends play um this was I was in college in the late 90s and early 2000s and um during that time like Hedwig and the Angry Inch came out and as a movie and that sort of like blew up my world in terms of thinking about gender in some really particular ways um and that helped too just seeing new and different representations of gender there's also this movie um La Vie en Los which is a French movie about a trans like a gender variant child that I watched pretty obsessively at that time um and I think somewhere in there I started going to yoga um and that helped and queer bars helped queer bars and pride helped like putting my body physically in the way of other queers and just being like it i have people yeah and what college were you at i was at university of washington for two years and then i transferred to seattle university um can you tell me at all about some of your favorite bars to be at yeah. and what the scenes were like there? <laughs> totally. Um, the Wild Rose was a lesbian bar, and it is still existing, and it is... What a, city? In Seattle. Um, it is above a, like, women's bathhouse, um, and I still love the Rose. It's, like, very sort of old school divey dyke bar um also in seattle is the cuff which is like the leather bar but it's also where the queer two-stepping is and it's just like very friendly and nice and you know the best of leather bars basically um my favorite gay bars all together anywhere currently throughout Uh, time great um (laughs) i love gay bars (laughs) um um, twin peaks in san francisco which is uh it's like a bear bar it's the first gay bar with big windows in the front in the country so it was like very um 
what it was made, it was very dangerous to do so because you could see in, right? And that is a it's a particular kind of statement. Um, the Lex, love, hate the Lex, but it's dead now, like so many dyke bars. Um, I really loved the hole when it was open here in New York. So the hole closed, I think, in 2006. Um, and it was a mixed queer bar. And it was dirty and grungy and like you could make out and do other things on these like nasty back corner couches. Um, and it always had like a fun dance floor. We love to complain about it because also it was like a hot mess, but it was the last real mixed queer bar that you could go to to like be at a party, not just like a party that was in somebody's house or one of those like Roman queer parties or something like that. Um, and I really miss having a like dedicated mixed queer place to go to. Um, I love like the Phoenix and Metropolitan and like those bars. Um, and gingers and I like gingers a lot a lot a lot a lot <laughs> um, I really love a dyke bar um I'm trying to oh for a while I think it's changed or it's um closed but in Nashville um I think this is my first memory of being in a gay bar it was this gay bar called changes that had a like country floor or a country room and a like R&B room and a hip hop room and then a gift shop where you could buy like dazzle cowboy hats and I was like what is this this is amazing um in Seattle there used to be this bar called Timberline which is where queer two-stepping used to be and here queer two-stepping isn't in a bar it's at a um usually at some like dance studio in philly queer two-stepping i think it moves around oh no it's at tavern on kamak now i love tavern on kamak it's like a gay piano bar like marie's crisis um but like neighborhood year and they have like a pretty shitty small town bar like dance floor on the top um oh and then sweet on the upper west side which is uh it's just like a neighborhood gay bar So, what was uh, the bars with the queer two-stepping? Mm -hmm. Was that also important in, like, the movement of bodies? Yeah, I didn't find that until I moved to New York. So, I moved to New York in 2003 for graduate school. Um, and I don't remember when, when I found two-stepping. It must have been, like... 2007, 2008 or something like that. Um, queer two-stepping happens in most of the large cities. And I think it's amazing because it is, uh, it's like social dancing and that it's not like contra dancing where you change all the time. It's just like you have a partner for a dance and then you go on. There's also like line dancing that happens too. But it's like very, it's very multi-generational. It's one of the few places that I interact with older queers. Um, it tends to be pretty gay men-centric, but there's always some older dykes kicking around. Um, 
And it is one of the few places that I've been able to access other people, other queers who grew up poor working class, which I find extraordinarily difficult to find, especially in New York City. Um, And... Yeah, so that is very important. Also, queers who love country music are very, very important to me. Um, I grew up listening to country, and I think the more I'm in New York City and the more it's clear to me that I'm just staying here, that this is where I feel at home and where I can be my best self, um, that also finding the things that make me me from my childhood and from where I'm from um, and integrating that into my New York self is really important just for my own sense of, like, wholeness I guess um so queer two-stepping is one thing that does that and also there's like there's this uh I guess party um queer country monthly that my friend Karen puts on that um that is awesome and just a way for a lot of queers and trans people who grew up in in country loving places to come together and I don't know be with music we love um Yeah, the thing I love about two-stepping is that there's a social ethic that you don't say no to someone who's inviting you to dance unless there's a really good reason not to dance with them. You already said yes to someone else, you really need a break, like something like that. Um, But you don't say no just because you're like, no, I don't want to dance with you. Um, So there's like none of that sceniness that happens in other kinds of queer dancing places and also no one will ever non-consensually like do anything with you as you're dancing and there are like social norms about if you're leading and following but um you get to like choose which of those you do because it's queer so it's not like gendered in any kind of way and um and it's beautiful and it can be like as sexy or not sexy as you want it to be um And I think that that's really great to be able to engage in a kind of dancing. And when so much of queer dancing gets so sexualized so quickly, and that is fun, obviously, it's fun and awesome. But sometimes it's nice to be able to go out dancing and be like, there are some like, there's some scriptedness about how much space is you between you and another person. Um, And that space is not about um, absence of connection. It's like, real productive space like in music they're like rests are not the absence of of sound rests are the um they're sort of like holders for making energy and sound go together we can't make sense out of anything if we don't have rests if we don't have space between things so again like uh today where are the places to go queer two-stepping in New York? Mm-hmm. Um, Big Apple Ranch is where you go today, but it is on hiatus because they just moved, and I think they're figuring out where they're going to go again. I think they're going to start up again in September. Yeah. I always want all the Queer Country Monthly stuff to have, like, two-stepping lessons so that people can be learning more because I think that people are often just, like, watching the bands but don't necessarily know how to, like, dance to the music. Um, yeah. It can always be much just a thing. So moving back to college, Mm -hmm. um, were you the first in your family to go to college? I was. Yeah. Can you talk about what that was like? Um, Uh What kind of support did you have? And Uh what support did you find or community did you find at college? Yeah. Um, So I was the first in my family to go to college. I think my aunt went to college but 
I don't really have any memory of that. And she was also the first in her like nuclear family to go to college. Um, my, we had like, I went to a pretty good public high school. And so our guidance counselors were thinking about college with us when they were advising us. And they would tell us very clearly when we were choosing courses, like if you're planning on going to college, you need to do X, Y, and Z things so that you can like meet the admissions requirements. So I'm very grateful to have been at a high school where that was true, where the guidance counselors were thinking about that. Um, That said, people in Spokane don't really leave Spokane unless they join the military or become missionaries. Um, so there's not a lot of sort of extravagant thinking about what college could mean. So I remember clearly I was a, I was a musician throughout high school and played clarinet in concert band and in, um, youth orchestras in Spokane. And I really wanted to go to conservatory for a long time. So I was, I wanted to go to Oberlin and become a concert clarinetist, um, and I told my guidance counselor this, and he was like, why would you want to go to college in, in the middle of Ohio? There's nothing there. I was like, it's Oberlin. I don't understand what you're saying. I don't even know how I knew what Oberlin was, other than that, out of my own um, sort of desperation to get out of Spokane, I had been researching things sort of madly since as far as back as I can remember. Um, and... So I didn't even think about applying to Oberlin, really, because I felt very, like, deterred by my by my guidance counselor. Um, and then I ended up going to University of Washington because it was cheap and because I could imagine getting there um, and because I had a lot of support in applying to state-based schools from my high school. Um, and they understood, my guidance counselor knew how the financial aid situation worked for state schools. And that was imperative because no one in my family knew anything about what was going on in that world or how to make it work. Um, and my most immediate need was to get out of Spokane. Um, and I'm pretty glad that I went to University of Washington, um, although... I needed to transfer, and I'm glad also that I transferred. Um, My family continues to not... I'm I'm estranged from my mother, and my dad and I are... uh, We, like, loosely communicate. Um, They don't really understand what I'm doing with my life at all, or why. Um, And that is partially related to like being going to college and then going to graduate school and going to graduate school again um that I'm I'm much removed from my family's experience moving to New York at all is a huge change like no one moves as far away from home in my family um both on my mom's side and my dad's side um Yeah, I didn't have much support at all. So, like, my aunt went to college, but she didn't talk to me about what that was like. And she moved away. Like, she was out of my picture, basically. Um, And none of her, like, her parents, my grandparents, didn't really understand anything about that system or anything either. When I 
decided to go to college, my grandpa was like, you should for sure just join the army because they'll pay for everything. Um, and we had fights for years because I was just like, grandpa, I'm not, I'm not going to, going to join the army. Like it's just, that's just not going to happen. Um, yeah. So there's like, they're like, I think in their mind, my dad's side is like, we support you and we love you and we want what's going to make you happy. But in terms of the like functioning of everything, they don't understand what's going on. And so I got through college mostly from support of the, like scholarships from the United Methodist Church and this organization called the Fund for Theological Education and from the Third Wave Foundation because they were doing individual scholarships then. Um, and... I didn't know, I, I think it's only now, many, many, many years. I graduated in 2003, um, so this far out, and having had a couple of jobs where I was doing like, um, so I was a case manager for many years, and I had a f I've had a few jobs where what I do is life skills education with adolescents and young adults um, around employment and education and in doing that, I've been able to see, like, oh, I really had very little support getting through the, like, I had very little support in terms of the making systems work end of going through college. Um, I really just put together what I could put together and hoped for the best and hoped that everybody was, like, being honest about everything. I remember very clearly when I got out of so I, I moved to New York to go to Union Theological Seminary, which is where I got a master's in philosophy of religion. It was there 2003 to 2005. And uh, I was no longer Christian when I went there. And I went there largely to see if I wanted to be an academic. Um, and most importantly, because I knew I wanted to move to New York. And it, was, it gave me financial resources to be able to move to New York. Um, I got a full scholarship for tuition there. Um, it wasn't until I graduated from Union and was looking for jobs and all I could find were crappy secretary jobs that I realized that most of what I was supposed to be doing in both college and graduate school was networking. Um, and that I had no way to tell that because the message I'd been getting since I was a child was that if you go to college, you'll be able to get a good job. But what nobody ever tells you is that the main thing that you're supposed to be doing is building your networks, building your connections and utilizing those connections so that you can get a good job. It's not actually about college at all. Nobody cares how much you know or how good your grades are, what your degrees are, and those are not important things. Um, it's, it's really all about your connections and how you make use of them. So I have found it very, very hard to figure that out the hard way. And I think it's the thing that I wish most I had somebody to tell me about. It's also the thing that I tell people most when I'm in these jobs doing life skills education work because it is the most obscure thing about college. Did you, when you have networked, mm -hmm. have you found queer transness to play into your decisions of who you network or yeah. you disclose when you network? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find networking to be extremely hard because I think it is like, like all the class stuff comes out there and I'm just like, I don't understand who I'm supposed to be talking to and how and like for what purpose. Um, I feel very, very um, 
protective about who I talk to generally. So basically only want to talk to other queer and trans people ever. That's not particularly useful in networking because (laughs) we're not usually the people in positions to be giving people jobs or making those kinds of connections. Um, And so I don't like, I, I, I don't, um, being out is very, very important to me, but I'm more, way more out about my queerness than I am about my transness, and certainly professionally. In my like, in my closest professional circle, so at the rabbinical school that I go to, in my professional associations, in training programs, I'm much more apt to be out in those environments because I build relationships, and it's easier for me to um, do the sort of like relational building work that helps non-trans people who don't have any prior context for working with trans people and being in relationship with trans people to sort of like get on board with me as a person so that I can work with them to, you know, not be transphobic. Um, And then when it comes to my professional life in terms of like where I'm working and how, um, I, I'm not that out at all. So people default to calling me she and her because I present as a femme person and I am comfortable in my body in the way that I'm presenting. But I basically am not interested in rocking the boat professionally. And so I'm content to let um, however people gender me happen because... Um, we, we don't actually live in a world where the kind of gender that I have is recognizable to many people. Um, and I've found for sure that even in trans community, my gender can be difficult for some trans people. And so how can I expect that non-trans people who don't have much context at all are going to be like very understanding of where I'm at? Um, that causes me some worry and some stress because it is hard to not be totally yourself. Um, and also, I think it allows me to be in a place where I can work with communities to learn more about um, about gender and about the world and in a way that's like not necessarily pushing an agenda or is about me, so I don't put myself in the like middle of all of the questions about trans inclusion. Are there any specific things you do while at work um, to deal with the constant misgendering? No, I try not to pay attention to it, mostly. Um, It feels like a, a... Because I've chosen to have that be my strategy, and because most of how I think about pronouns is that they are a strategy like my pronouns I don't indicate anything about how I identify and I don't look to them to sort of like reify or project my identity I think of them as a strategy for moving about the world because we live in a very gendered world and it's gendered in ways that I have very little control over um because so because I'm thinking about pronouns in that strategic way it's easier for me to see like I'm engaging in my professional spheres in this way because it is safer for me because it helps me to get jobs because it helps me to be intelligible to the people with whom I work and my job is that I'm a rabbi um, or that I'm a chaplain and 
that's extremely relational and it I don't want to be talking about my own personal identity so much because I want to be able to be in the actuality of the relationship um and that just feels way 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 more important to me to be able to be in the in the immediacy of the relationships that exist sometimes it is exhausting because I want to be able to be my full self at the table um but I would rather not have the constant fights over what my pronouns are or have to the the disappointment for me that happens when I say my pronouns are they and them and then to have people not use them because they're not used to using them or they disagree with the grammar or whatever else um it's it's far more upsetting to me to deal with that than it is to um just have people pronoun me however they're going to pronoun me and then go on with my life I would rather not have those fights yeah you mentioned that when you moved to New York in 2003 to get your master's in philosophy of religion uh, you were no longer Christian Mm -hmm. Uh, could you talk about how that came about yeah um So I studied theology and religious studies and women's studies in college. And in the midst of all of that, and and I was in this um, ordination process in the United Methodist Church. So in my ordination process in the church, I was dealing with two primary things. One is that I didn't so much believe in Jesus in the like, Jesus is my savior way. And so I was working a lot with my mentor about what I could and could not say theologically that was in keeping with the tradition. And there's like a articulation of faith that you need to be able to say to be able to be ordained. And so we were having a lot of conversations about um, different things that people mean about Jesus when they're answering these questions. Um, At the same time, I was coming to grips with the reality that the Methodist church might not ever change that piece of polity that self-avowed and practicing homosexuals cannot be ordained or appointed to serve. And so I had this very clear sort of reckoning that was like, how do I, how am I going to justify doing all of these theological gymnastics to stay in a church that fundamentally doesn't want me, that maybe wants me as a person, but does not want me in the totality of who I am. And ultimately, I decided that it wasn't worth it to stay, that I was having to work too hard to stay for people who did not want me. Um, And so what I articulated to my community was that it was mostly about the the homophobia piece that I was leaving because I didn't want to be fighting about who I am anymore, that I don't need to justify who I am and there's nothing wrong with who I am. Um, the, the background piece theologically that I was increasingly at odds with my ability to stay in Christianity altogether because of the like frizzling of my sort of theological ideas around Jesus, um, that I kept in the background a little bit more. And then it was about a year after I left my ordination process that I left Christianity altogether. I was in college then. And so I used my last year in college to start researching humanist approaches to religion so I could find other ways of sort of engaging theologically. Um, 
that's that's part of what brought me to Union as well, is that I wanted to figure out if there was a way to to reshape Christianity so that it was more humanistic, that it wasn't relying on this one figure to save humanity, but that it could talk about ways that we save ourselves and each other. Um, it's all of that research that led me to Judaism. Um, so in the midst of all of that early research that I was doing in like 2002, 2001, 2002, I found the writings of Mordechai Kaplan, who's the guy who made what's now called Reconstructionist Judaism. He was a conservative rabbi then. Um, he was doing this work in the 50s, or he, I guess he was not a conservative rabbi. He's a He's just a rabbi, and but working out of Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, and so I found these sort of like seminal writings in Reconstructionist Judaism, and then I put it all on hold for about 10 years before I converted to Judaism. And during that time, I both was building a lot of Jewish community and was having uh, sort of like angry time at religion, which makes sense given the sort of like dealing with homophobia. Um, it took me a long time to be able to be mad at United Methodism in particular, because United Methodism was also like my church was what made my childhood livable. Um, so it felt, uh, extremely dangerous to let go of it because I didn't know what else would keep me afloat. Um, I didn't really let myself question belief in God stuff until the last couple of years though. Um, I think after I established myself in Judaism and started my, um, uh, so I'm pursuing ordination as a rabbi now I'm in rabbinical school. Um, in Judaism, it doesn't so much matter if you believe in God or how. And so it's much easier to um, establish yourself within religious community and within religious work. Um, and then whatever happens about your own theology, your, your own spirituality, sort of that's up to you and your relationship with the divine, however you want to call it. Can you, when, when did you um, go through, when did you uh, first transition and mm -hmm. come out as trans? Mm -hmm. So I started identifying as genderqueer when I was in college in 2002-2003. That was like a pretty, genderqueerness in those years was pretty transphobic. So it was like pretty militant in the like, you don't need to change your body. Like you can be whatever you identify as without doing anything to your body. So I was in that camp for a while. And then when I moved to New York, I started to get involved in trans organizing through Sylvia Rivera Law Project and building more trans community there and in that time I was able and I think through 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 different things the other trans community that I was part of um was able to see the transphobia of my early gender queerness and that what lied beneath that was real need for 
medical body modification. Um, I didn't do that for a long time. I transitioned, like, so I, I first identified myself as trans in 2004, I think. Um, and then sometime after that, I went on, I went on T, I was on T for over five years. I had top surgery. Um, having top surgery, I think, was the most important part of of sort of like a medicalized transition that I had. Um, both because in Washington, you can change your birth certificate if you have any gender confirming procedure. It doesn't matter what kind of gender confirming procedure. Um, so after I had top surgery, I was able to change my birth certificate and that helped me to know that I didn't want to do that. It helped me, it was one of the first things that helped me to be like, oh, I don't actually think that my gender is stable in the way that some people's gender is stable. I can anticipate having multiple transitions and I don't want to do an administrative process that will make my life harder than it already is in terms of trans administrative life. Um, so that was very interesting to me to be like, oh, I had fought so hard for this surgery. And I thought that I had, a, I thought up until that time that I had a pretty stable gender identity as a trans man, as a trans bag. Um, and then to be sort of like in this place of being like, oh, maybe it's actually just not, that's just not where I'm at. Um, and then I started a second third transition I don't whatever how many have been many genders um I stopped being a trans man in 2000 um I think that was 2010 yeah yeah and identified as gender queer for a while um and just sort of had a very androgynous presentation for a long time and then at some point in there I started identifying as femme I've like gone on and off about femme identity through all my genders um I, I think that in in one way there was like a very pragmatic thing that it was like summer in New York and I just couldn't handle wearing pants anymore so I was like I guess I will be a skirt wearing person now and like, I don't know what that means about my gender, but I'm not wearing pants. Um, and it just opened up a whole new world of, like, how I want to, like, what I feel hot in. And I think in the, in the, this, like, later approach to gender that I'm having now, it's much, much more focused on, like, what do I feel hot in? Like, what makes me feel good to be in? And, like, what do I desire wearing? What makes me feel desirable when I wear it? Um, and that's an approach to gender that I, I haven't had ever in my life. Um, but it feels very opening to me and fun and playful. Um, and I think, I don't know, honest. Um, that, like, the stuff about gender being, gender, like, pronouns being a, uh, strategy like gender feels like a strategy altogether but only having it be in that like sort of um, sterile world of strategy um 
it like, uh, how do you say? We have bodies. We're not just like, not just even we have bodies. We are bodies. We're not just like ideas with things that we suit up in different ways. Like we, we are bodies. We are embodied and our sexualities are embodied and our identities are embodied. And I think as I do more of my own trauma healing and more of my own um, sort of understanding of what makes me feel good and helps me to be in my body in new ways. But I know also equally that I'm only be able to like inhabit the body that I'm inhabiting in the way that I am right now because I had top surgery. Like if I still had to deal with what I had before I could not dress how I dress now um, I think it would cause too 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 much dysphoria for me yeah um, when when you stopped identifying as a trans man mm -hmm. did you have any models to look to oh, who had like right. done similar things or yeah no no and I only know two other people, three other people, um, who have had similar kinds of experiences. And we talk sometimes about it, and, but not often. It's I find it to be very hard to find people who will talk openly about um, experiences of multiple transitions because it's really, um, you know, there's that narrative that's kicking around at about trans people that we don't know what we're doing we're just gonna make it's just a phase you'll grow out of it whatever um and so in some very real way the experience of people like me um like proves that transphobic narrative right right like it shows that it's not that some of us do change right and that is tricky because I mean, all of the standards of care about transitioning, medicalized transitioning are about like making sure you don't do something that you're going to regret later. The reality is that nobody knows what they're going to want throughout their lives and how much they're get, like how much a person needs and wants a thing in a moment doesn't mean so very, very much about what they are going to need and want 20 years from now. Um, and I don't, we, we are taught that we need to make up our mind about what our gender is and we need to make up our mind about what we want from our body and what we need our body to look like and that it needs to be done in some sort of conformity to uh, heteronormative and, um, and transphobic understanding of what trans bodies are like and what we're supposed to want from our bodies. And so it's hard to find people who are willing to talk about trans experience that flies in the face of that because it throws so much of those narratives off and so much of what we have to engage in order to get the kinds of medicalized transition, transitions that we want requires us to step into the narratives that are demanded of us by largely non-trans practitioners. Have you gotten any blowback from trans community you're in? Yeah. From multiple transitions? Yeah. What's it like talking 
It's, I mean, I've had, like, people, like, say flat out that I, like, detransitioned or that I went back to being a woman. I gave up on being trans. Um, That's very hurtful. Um, I think it's very hurtful. I also understand it. Like, the stakes are really high in trans community always. And um, I can have compassion for where it's coming from. But um, I just wish all the time that people could be as, um, there's a, like, we can talk a good game about what it means to be playful about gender, but I find that trans community is pretty normative about who gets to play with gender and how and that that's often about masculine of center people being able to inhabit and take up a lot of space about their like gender play and it doesn't work out so well for trans femme people all the time and um that same kind of space isn't allowed or it doesn't have the same cultural capital or cultural currency or isn't understood in the same ways at all um and for sure for people who have multiple transitions there's just like because there's so little language to talk about it and people are so sort of touchy about asking questions about it it makes it hard to be intelligible and so for a long time I didn't even like it was only with very close friends often only close friends who were also trans identified that I would be very like I'm still trans I'm still trans I'm still trans um and I think in the last few years, it's become more and more important to me that I'm surrounding myself dominantly with trans people who also have no questions about my transness. Um, And that feels better. Um, Yeah, but it's hard. Um, Can you talk to me about what we're... You said that um, when you first went to undergrad college was when you were identifying with genderqueer for the first Mm -hmm. time, Um, and the messaging was pretty transphobic. Yeah. Do you know where the ideas of genderqueer were coming from and how they were circulating? Yeah. I think at that time they were primarily coming out of masculine of center communities interacting with lesbian separatists communities are like coming out of lesbian culture which was very separatist so like all the shit around Mishfest was happening at that same time um that that's where a lot of the energy about gender queerness was coming from was from people coming out of dyke culture um so it's not super surprising like there's a it was like very much like yeah it was very much like, you don't need to, like, cut off your boobs. You don't need to whatever. Like, that was the, the strain of it. Um, in some real ways, it was like, you can still be a woman and and do all of these other things, but really, you're still a woman. Um, yeah. <laughs> cool and then so with SRLP Mm -hmm. and finding trans community there that 
liberated some of these ideas? Absolutely. And that my my trans world got bigger mm-hmm. than just masculine of center people. Um, that I could see lots of different ways of being trans. That there were people in my life suddenly who were doing medical transitions. And I was like, oh, you can control things. You can make your period stop. You can make your boobs go away. Um you can tuck, you can do all of these things to make your body conform more with the way that you need to. And I mean, the the interesting thing for me on this side is I, I was on T for more than five years and facial hair growth is not reversible. So I'm having an experience of having to learn many things about how to alter my body and response to what secondary sex characteristics happen as a result of pronoun of hormones um so like learning about laser learning about how to access laser learning about like how to deal with your vocal pitch because once your vocal cords thicken and your voice drops there's no going back um so anything that you want to do with it is all about voice coaching and um I'm in many ways very grateful to have those experiences to be like, what are the, what are the, um, not passing strategies, but like, what are the things that I want to do with my body to make my body do what I need it to do to be in the world in a way that feels like I can manage being in the world. Um, Are you up to talking about where your experience has been accessing those types of um, Mm. medical services Mm -hmm. and what has been the understanding around multiple transition? Mm -hmm. Um, So we've gone to two queer-specific clinics, both of which I've had a hard time at in terms of having my gender identity uh, honored by... The majority of medical staff so I've definitely had the experience of being mispronounced and misnamed by medical providers and medical staff at queer clinics <coughs> um, that was not my favorite way to access healthcare, but I was also uninsured and a poor person so there's no other options really um, that's how I started tea um, was by being in those clinics. Um, Are you comfortable naming those clinics? No. And I also was able to go to a private doctor who provided trans care and has provided trans care for a long time. And he was the doctor I was seeing when I stopped taking tea. Um, I loved him. He was very smart and very good. Um, Including that when I decided he had a, a much more harm reductionist approach to medical care altogether, including trans-specific care. And so when I talked about perhaps wanting to not be on T anymore, he was like, well, have you thought about just wanting, like, do using a little when you want to? Um, which, of course, I had thought about, but did not think I could talk about openly because when I started T, I wanted to be on a low dose and was very, very much talked into being on higher doses from my providers so that I could, like, achieve maximal results or whatever because it was supposed, what I was supposed to be doing. Like, even though a lot of people were taking low doses at that time and people still take low doses of their the hormones of choice because they want to try things or they want to only eat some stuff, they, whatever, lots of reasons people take low doses. Yeah, so that is some of my experience. Um, 
I found surgery pretty, I mean, the fine, the primary barrier to accessing surgery was financial and I was really only able to access surgery because I got hit by a car and won a lawsuit, which provided about half of the income. And then a friend very, very graciously helped me out with the rest of it. Um, so that felt like a miracle and I did not anticipate ever being able to access a gender confirming surgery ever, but it has made all the difference for me. Um, and I don't know. Now I don't have a doctor. I don't really have medical care. I find it hard to think about going to the doctor. Um, I don't exactly know where I would go, which is, is, is true and untrue. I was the, I was, I've worked in trans clinics and uh, LGBT health services in New York. I have a pretty good sense of who's providing care and where. Um, but the sort of emotional reality about accessing care for me just feels like a giant bollicon because it's hard to find providers who you can really trust to actually understand your gender. And it's like, it's hard to find trans affirming providers much more trans-affirming providers who understand my kind of transness. Like that, that just feels like a one-in-a-million kind of thing. And really, I think what I would want to do is see... A, like, I have friends who are providers now, but I don't know how much I want to see a friend as my provider. But those are the ones who are most prepared to actually provide me the kind of care that I need. When you were going through grad school in New York City, mm -hmm. um, how are you supporting yourself financially mm -hmm. as a poor student? Now? Um, I guess when you first got here uh -huh. until now? Great. So I was, so when I was in grad school before at Union, I luckily got a full tuition scholarship and then I took out loans stupidly to cover most of my living expenses, but I worked at the library. That was the time in my life that I worked less, like the least. And, um, I only had one job, which I've never since had only one job and that was a part-time job. Um, after that, I worked a string of crappy jobs and then I got into direct services work and did sort of professional or what's it called? Paraprofessional social work. So without a degree, but still like case management and things like that for a long time until I went to rabbinical school. Um, now in rabbinical school, I work multiple jobs again. And so um, I do a mix of rabbinic leadership and communities. Um, I do some community organizing, some education, and some chaplaincy. So lots of hands and lots of pots. Yeah. Um, can you talk to me about your time as a case manager with uh, Cal Moore? Um, yeah, it was really, so I was the first person in that position, and I worked there for four years um, as a transgender case manager, and um, I loved it. I loved it a lot. Um, I love working, I love being a trans person, working only with trans people the most. Um, it was really uh, both beautiful and heartbreaking to be able to be part of people's, I mean, the things that people came to me for ranged from, like, 
can you help me with these medical transition things like working with insurance and things like that? Um, things were then in a much different place than they were now. So it was much harder to get things to go through insurance and things like that. It was like very early in that universe of things. So, um, I didn't always get to feel very productive or useful and much more like a gatekeeper, which was not the most exciting feeling. Um, and then a whole stream of other things that amounted to being an advocate with people in the different city and state-based systems that they're working in. A lot of um, negotiating with um, with HRA, with like Medicaid and Social Security Administration and the different ways that transphobia pops up, a lot of legal referrals and... Um, a lot also of pastoral care about the um, emotional experience of being trans, um, of coming out, about isolation, about violence, um, the many, 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 many ways violence comes out, um, about isolation, of, of like, where do I meet people? It's so hard to meet people, um, especially if people are not wanting to meet other queer and trans communities. Um, through, like, bar culture, which is so dominant. Um, a lot of, like, very outright religious questions, like, how do I how do I find a church that's going to welcome me? I just got kicked out for being trans. How do I talk to my grandma about X, Y, Z, or my mom or my dad um, to see if I can, like, not be homeless anymore? Um, lots of those kinds of things. So I found it to be the best case management job that I had in part because case management so often is like you are, you're tasked to do this one thing with this one program. So you like do the paperwork for that program. You do the intervention for that, that in that way, whatever is set. Um, but there's, there's no programs. We were making everything up. And so, it was just very, very much about figuring out what people needed and what there was to help with it. Yeah. Are there any specific moments you can remember where your relationship to multiple spiritualities and religions mm -hmm. um, played a big role in case management? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, people would... Once, uh, this didn't happen with all people, but like once people realized that I could talk about religion, if that was a thing that they wanted to talk about, they would go in hard for it. Um, and often ask me like very direct questions about like, how is it that I knew all of these things that I knew about Christianity if I wasn't Christian, if I was Jewish? And um, that was always very very interesting to be in the middle of but because trans people also often trans like trans people understand transitioning not necessarily multiple transitions of gender but for sure understand the principle of like something is not right and I need to figure out how to make it right and so I'm gonna figure out like that that's a portable life skill right like understanding how to how to make a change towards something that is life-giving. Um, and so people would often just be very interested in how it was that I got from point A to point B. Um, and, and yeah, it's, I found it 
very exciting to get to talk about. I didn't like often bring it up because it was wasn't about me, but yeah. Um, so I I imagine since when you first learned about genderqueer um, to now in mm-hmm. twenty seventeen, identifying as gender variant. Mm-hmm. Um, what changes have you seen mm-hmm. in like gender variance, gender queerness, yeah. understandings of it, non-binary? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think the most notable is in the last, I guess I would say like five, maybe five to 10 years, but it seems much more recent than that, that there's been a lot more uh, trans feminine spectrum people both identifying themselves and on the flip being identified by other people as gender variant, as non-binary and gender queer. Um, and that has been phenomenal to watch happen, exciting to get to be part of happening. Cause I think that part of what has made that shift happen in addition to people self-identifying publicly and forcefully in that publicness is people who are not trans feminine, gender variant identified people um, forcing the forcing the shift in culture um, by articulating the trans misogyny and how it plays out by naming out the privilege of um, masculine of centered gender variant experiences and how that's rooted in trans misogyny in so many ways. Um, so it has been exciting to get to be part of sort of like shaping the trans community that we need, that I certainly need to have happen. Um, and, and on the converse, like I'm, I'm not a trans feminine spectrum person and my, I like my identity and experience and sort of like trans presentation is for sure more recognizable in trans community because of, um, because of the proliferation of gender variant trans femme identities and experiences and people. Um, because if the only thing that exists in terms of what is like understood as gender queer or non-binary or gender variant is like this androgynous masculine of center thing, then there's no space really for femme presenting people to be understood as non-binary. What, um, do you have any daily safety concerns or mm-hmm. practices to deal with that? And how has that looked mm-hmm. across, um, different present, different gender presentations? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say in terms of my daily safety concerns related to my trans experience that was most heightened when I was presenting as a trans man and as a trans fag so very fey and um I passed as a man but very very effeminate and so that was the time that I felt most that it was most dangerous to be sort of like out and about in the world as a trans person and um I did not have an experience of being targeted just sort of like run of the mill 
harassment kinds of things, but not the physical assaults. Um, and I would say that my day-to-day now is sort of like run-of-the-mill harassment that anybody who's being identified outwardly as a woman would experience. So cat calls, like leers, those kinds of things. But again, not much in the physical harassment, like physical violence kind of way. Thank God I've never experienced that. Yeah. I would say that, um, I do live with it as a sort of like persistent fear in my life that sort of regardless of how I'm experiencing it on the day-to-day, the, the potential that if somebody finds out that I'm trans that I could experience heightened violence because of that, that feels very real in my head. Going back on a different path, um, do you have any goals, I suppose, um, going through this um, ordination process in rabbinical school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Relating to my chances or just sort of generally? Not necessarily, yeah. Yeah. Just general goals. yeah. yeah, I want to be a chaplain. Um, so I want to work in hospitals specifically. Um, I really love pastoral care. I really like... Um, being able to accompany people when they're facing, um, I guess, facing their mortality head on. And and more, more important than that, even the most basic job of a chaplain is to be a person with people and to, um, to lift up humanity, um, often in the face of systems that are dehumanized. So medical systems can be dehumanizing. We find chaplains in other environments, like in prisons um, and in colleges and all kinds of places. And um, so being able to be a person whose job it is in the world to lift up humanity so that it can be um, as divine as we are um, feels like a real gift to be able to do. Chaplains also have a pretty unique role in that we can be advocates within systems. So as a chaplain, I could advocate for trans patients, for example, and that feels for sure connected to why I want to be a chaplain, that I want to be in a place to be able to um, to utilize my place in a system to help people access what it is they need to access. Um, and that that understanding the lifting up humanity is uh, is about an emotional process or a spiritual process but it is also it's the same sort of like strategy embodiment um spiritual emotional needs thing that i was talking about my own self um and self-conceptualization like we can only do those things insofar as our actual life needs our physical needs are being met right so the the strategy piece of like who like something's going wrong, who can help me do it? Um, chaplains have a have a huge role to play there. And that um, advocate role—that's a legal standing within systems. Uh, not so much legal. It's just like a role. Yeah, yeah. So chaplains are part of care teams um, 
And so if something is going wrong, we can figure out who it is that we should be working with best to address it. And if it's a systems issue in a hospital and a clinic or something like that, we can take it on as a, as a systems issue. Mm. Yeah. Are these, this attention to this kind of care mm -hmm. and building support teams, um, are these lessons you learned um, from childhood and the mm. church community you had there? Um. I think in the way that I used my church community. So in the, the way that I was like, I did not know when I, so I went to a church because a friend asked me if I want, wanted to go to church. And all my friends did that in a sort of relentless way. And at some point I finally said yes. And I think what I realized was that there were a lot of people there and that my friend was getting a lot of love from people who are not just her parents. And that was extremely appealing to me. Um, what I learned from the Methodist church was that there were systems to help me. Um, so they had like, they have a board of education. They have like, actually I went to a food pantry in that was housed in the church that I went to before I became a member of the church. So there were some real ways that the church community itself um, was providing for my needs where they weren't being met otherwise. And so that, that made me think for a long time that I wanted to be a congregational leader. And I do love congregational leadership. Um, but I think I am most, I feel most powerful in roles like the chaplain role. Um, I, I like to have the healer role mixed. So I think, um, there's a, there's a piece that's about the, I think, m much more the sort of advocate care team draw. That's a piece that I've learned not from the church, but from being in queer community, um, that we need to love and protect each other, that we need to advocate for each other, that um, very often we're the only ones who knows what it is that we're actually facing. And we have to, like the principle that you never go to a doctor alone, you never go to the hospital alone. Like, those are all things that draw me further into wanting to work in healthcare. that very often people do end up working in, like, accessing care in those systems alone. And it is important to have people who know um, sort of the full extent of what could be being faced by any given trans or queer patient. One, one connection I've noticed is that I imagine that in these support teams, um, they tend, I imagine there's some intergenerational spread mm -hmm. um, and that kind of intergenerational connection you also flagged as being a, an important part of queer two-stepping. Right. Um, what's important to you about having those kinds of connections? Yeah. <clears throat> um, I think it can be very easy to feel like we're making everything up for the first time. And often our language in queer community and, and trans community is that that's exactly what's happening. That like, it's never before been like this. We're doing everything new, nothing like this system. Like we're the first people to ask for this, to demand this. Um, and it's both true and not true. 
that there have always been queer and trans people kicking around and there have been different abilities in different generations to take on um, the systems that we're working in and the realities of the life that the like cultural life that is being led um and we have much to learn from the generations that have come before us about what it means to live in our world and i think as our as our current world becomes more and more fascist we have very specific lessons to learn from trans and queer elders who have actually lived through fascism um about what it is to move through a daily life And on top of just general, like, honor our elders, like, we're only able to have the, like, robust queer and trans proliferation that we have now because of the intense work of the generations that have come past, like, both Stonewall and before. Yeah. I think, uh, now I have a, one of my last questions mm-hmm. is a bit of a uh, selfish ask on my part. Cool. <laughs> um, do you have any words for, or any messages for any um, uh, gender queers who are feeling uneasy about or have been like constantly kind of waffling between what kind of medical transitions to seek out um, Uh and then how to even talk about it with uncertainty, but still desire. Yeah, totally. Um, I think that the narrative that you have to be certain about something is false and it's constructed. And so you can only be as certain as you are in a given time. And I think forcing yourself to come to terms with like, what happens if I decide to do this and then I don't want it in the future? Like, how am I going to deal with having done something to my body that might be reversible and might not be reversible? Um, Deal with those questions head on and very, very really much of what we're doing, especially as gender variant people when it comes to body modifications is um, a little bit like flinging ourselves off a cliff. Like, is this thing going to work, right? Is there a pa- is this a parachute? Um, maybe, maybe not. It's not as desperate as flinging ourselves off a cliff, obviously. Like, but there's like a, there's like a flinging into the unknown. That's the thing I'm trying to convey. Um, that is real and everybody is demanding of us that we have certainty that there is no unknown but there's a huge unknown like you don't know how you're gonna feel in your body after x thing and no trans person knows how they're gonna feel in their body after x thing right there's a tremendous hope there's a tremendous build-up there's a tremendous like we put all of our eggs in one basket being like tea like i remember so clearly being like tea is going to be the thing that fixes it it was not the thing that fixed it there there was no there's no reason to think that tea is going to be the thing that fixes it it eased some things but didn't ease all things and um i i had no idea that top surgery was going to be as like relieving as it was because i didn't let myself imagine it for so long um 
because it was just like so, so, so far out of reach. Um, so I think there's a thing that's like dream big, right? Really imagine every possible thing, see what like you keep on coming back to what becomes like sort of an obsession, like not in a negative way necessarily, but like what, what, what's repetitive and like what you fantasize about and like what's the body of your dreams like um and is there any way to make your body now the body of your dreams um and to be directed by that um and I think to know really too that we have to engage in the systems as they are um and all of those systems require certain kinds of games and that is true about medical care for trans people as much as it is for other kinds of medical care for non-trans people. It's the same thing for accessing jobs, for accessing school, for getting on the bus. Like, we play games all the time, um, and they are just games. So figure out how to play the games on your terms. Um, and, like, drive, be the driver. Right. Every, that so much about our world tells us that we are not the drivers of our destiny and of our own bodies, of the games that we're playing. But you're the driver. You're the only one who can drive. Yeah. You mentioned that now you feel that a lot of your uh, gender feels are around um, hotness yeah. and um, like desirability, but like for what you feel good in yeah. and where you feel sexy. Yeah. Um, how do you balance, if you do, um, beauty standards mm-hmm. and gender? Fields? Right, totally. This is like a perennial challenge. Like, I am... Um, school is not a great environment for self-care or exercise. So, like... I weigh more now than I have in some time and I'm having like some challenges about that that are entirely about being socialized as a girl and what the beauty standards are for people who are read as women in the world um and because so much of queer culture especially in Brooklyn like there's so much around thinness and it is so intense um and I just have never been a very thin person and like my that's not a thing my body does um and so sort of combating my own I think I think there's a real thing that's about figuring out for myself what of the like body dysphoria that I experience what of that is about gender and what of it is about like other kinds of body dysphoria that are not necessarily rooted in gender but are about like size shit and other things about what our bodies are supposed to be like which obviously is gender but like the thinness thing is not just about gender it's like a prevailing cultural ethos in this world that I'm living in um and today was doing yoga for the first time in a long time and the um I was like doing it on yoga glow or something and the teacher just kept on being like we are constant. We are very often doing yoga practices for the purpose of what it's going to get us to. So, like, I'm going to like do this pose right now in this way because it will help me to be better at this other pose later, right? And that 
so he he just kept on saying like just be in the body you're in right now like all you can do is be in the body you're in right now um and not in some aspirational body of like what what will your body be like if you like exercise every day or you do yoga whatever but like all you can do is be in the body you're in right now um and I, I hear stuff like that pretty regularly and for whatever reason today it caught me and I was like oh right be in the body I'm in right now like that's literally all I can do and so like if I'm never able to exercise as much as I want to because my job demands are so high and I'm so tired at the end of the day that all I want to do is watch television like that's the body I'm in right now and I'll have to like deal with whatever ramifications are right harm reduction is a really good tool like um we make decisions and we have to understand what the array is and what the possible like gains and losses are from our decisions and um yeah so i think there's a there's a piece about it all that's about understanding the different pieces that make up where my where the separation is for me like how is it that I don't feel hot and where are those messages coming from that are telling me that I'm not hot is that like my 13 year old self shouting at me from some like message I'm getting from middle school right probably um that happens constantly <laughs> is it my current 38 year old self like telling myself like repeating back like bad messages at myself because I'm being self-hating in a moment probably also there's probably also some version of my like 22 year old self who was very very active and like had a different kind of body but also at that point I was a um I was a masculine spectrum trans person and I had particular kind of social currency and um that was a different part of my life um so just recognizing like, I guess like the the social and cultural pieces and my own history pieces that are part of feelings of hotness and then more and more I think it's that like be in the body you're at right now like whatever the noise is it's just noise and like we have we can just I mean it's not as simple as this but in in some ways I I think it might be sometimes so we can just decide like no today I'm going to feel hot I like yes all of this noise exists and I can just put it away somewhere like pack it up in a box and choose to just feel hot um choose clothes that help me feel that like not let myself stay closed up because I feel down um but make myself go out even if it feels bonkers to do that I think that's a lot of how I'm approaching it now that I think really the best we can do is be our best selves and put ourselves out in the world and hope, hope that it will land and that it'll work for ourselves at least. Yeah. I think. Can you talk to me about if you have any history with uh, mental health and what kinds of roles that has played um, both in finding support and the challenges mm -hmm. that you face. Mm -hmm. um, so 
I have, for a long time, my father was just anxiety. And then over the last couple of years, <coughs> an increasing clarity that I have um, PTSD and specifically complex PTSD from my childhood. Um, that is a challenge to deal with on the everyday. Um, and, and also because there's more of a body of knowledge, um, at, so, um, complex PTSD, um, I've only been able to get a sense of what it is like that as a, I mean, Diagnostic criteria, diagnostic criteria, I think they matter in some ways and don't matter in other ways. The thing that matters to me is an ability to name a set of experiences that other people who are not me also have so I don't feel as isolated in the world. Um, and also to be able to provide me with like things to read and other people's strategies to learn from about how to, how to be in this world. Um, one thing that I feel lucky about is that because people in queer and trans communities often face way more violence than, or like, maybe not more violence, we articulate violence pretty, uh, there's a way that dealing with trauma is very part of being in queer community that I wouldn't say so far as it's expected that everyone has traumatic experiences, but that queer providers and trans providers often have trauma-informed theory. Um, so if my criteria for finding providers is already restricted to only other queer and trans people, which it is because I don't really want to be working with non like people who aren't queer, um, especially in mental health settings, um, then I have like a greater chance of finding people who understand more about my experience, more about my history, more about what trauma means to me. Um, so I feel sort of lucky in that way, um, not to have had the traumatic experiences, but to be in a world today where we have so many queer providers who get to be out in their status as providers. Um, so I have more people to choose from in terms of accessing competent care. I'm lucky in that I don't need to go to a psychiatrist. I think if I was a person who needed to access regular psychiatric services that I would feel um, much more challenged by ability to access competent care. Um, yeah. And I would say too that um, the you know every every year for the past I don't know as many years as I can remember right now um, it's like more more trans more murders of trans women this year than last year than ever before um, and I think that part of that is about reporting and how things are being reported more now than they used to be in part is about increase in violence and um, the, there's a absolutely negative impact on me from the violence that 
happens in the world against trans people, even though I am not a trans woman of color. I'm not a direct, directly targeted person, but to be um, in community with and in some shared identity, um, like matrix with people who are targeted for violence because of identity and experience has an absolute impact on my mental health on the daily. Um, and so we feel very aware of that. Not in that it re-traumatizes me because it's not, it's not that close to me. It's like close in that my community is impacted and I feel that impact way. Um, and Yeah, I think it's in the, like, stop killing my people way. Um, with the, the continual death toll has an impact. Yeah. At any point, have you used substances to help manage mm -hmm. um, the anxiety and fears? And Yeah. Um, I for sure have had periods where I drink far more than I think I want or need to because I'm managing and self in self-medicating in that way um I rarely use other drugs I it was only only in the last couple of years that I've started to use other drugs in part because um I don't like losing control and my mother's side of the family has some alcoholism on it so I've been pretty careful about like keeping track of myself um and keeping track of my usage and why um but I think I am like aware that I like use alcohol both recreationally and medicationally <laughs> and um it makes me sometimes it makes me nervous and sometimes I'm just like this is the world that I'm I'm in um yeah, we all self-medicate in lots of different ways. Yeah. Have you found alcohol to be effective for you? Yeah, yeah. I wish that I had started smoking pot earlier in my life so I would know things like how to access it. Um, those are just things I don't know about because I like put it at bay until very late in my life, like very recently. Um, I think it might yeah alcohol i've found to be like i don't like to I, like i never get like blackout drunk or anything like that it's mostly like i want to not think so much i would like to have fun um playing is really hard for me like so mostly it's things like i would like to stop feeling sad i would like to feel happy and playful mm -hmm. um is this mostly in uh, gay bars? Like some of the ones you were talking about earlier? Sometimes gay bars. Sometimes for myself. Sometimes, like, I had a really shitty day and I just don't want to think about my day and would like to, like, think about cooking dinner or, like, anything other than my day. Um, so in that way, um, sometimes with friends. I, like, the the, the play thing is, is stressful, actually. Like not knowing how to play people really anticipate that everyone is gonna be like that playing is easy and like fun for everyone but i find it very stressful and like 
it's hard for me to know when people are playing and when they're not playing. And, um, so if I'm like hanging out with friends for a longer period of time, I often want to have drinks as part of that because I find it easier to socially manage then. Um, yeah. When you say play, are there any specific activities you have in mind? Um, I think it really, like, some of it is just, like, like, goofing around is play, and, like, jokes are play, um, spontaneous creativity, like, all of the realm of games that's, like, charades and make-believe are play also other kinds of games are play but it's easier for me to play like board games that have like scripted rules and ways of engaging dancing is play for sure um i think that's part of why i like two-stepping so much because again it's like they're scripted ways of engaging um and Yoga feels like play to me, um, and there's a lot that's just about like the um, the unscripted or the like un unplanned social interactions where people anticipate or expect a lot of like playfulness um, that I I generally don't know how to deal with those kinds of things because I, I think partially I'm just like a more serious person and um, partially uh, as a as a result of like my history or whatever I uh, I take everything at face value and so when things are you know a lot of of play like sort of like turns on the edge of like things aren't exactly as it seems um and that feels often very confusing to me in a way that increasingly I'm like, I want to engage that. I really want to unlock what's happening there and like how it is that you know how to do that and like what makes that fun or like how do you know to make that joke? Um, but it feels very, it feels very obscure and unsettling and like quicksandish to me. Um, and a little bit like a slippery slope of like, how do you know when something goes from play to serious or when something goes from fun to dangerous? Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, can you talk to me more about, you said you've recently started using substances other than alcohol. Mm -hmm. You mentioned weed. Mm -hmm. um, are there specific times when you like to use it? And mm -hmm. what kinds of thoughts or feelings happen after consumption? Mm -hmm. um, I think like when out with friends and um, afterwards, just a lot of inquisitiveness mostly. Like, I think I'm, because I'm, older than most people are when they start using things. Um, I have a real, like, 
what's it like to use that thing? What's it like to use that thing? Um, and then a little bit of a like, yeah, I don't think that I need to do that again. Um, because it, like I, I, I learned a thing where I had an experience. Um, yeah. A lot of inclusiveness. Um, I don't, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think partially what's interesting is that the ways that, um, different substances can be used to like, you know, they're interesting because they alter your mindset. So it can make things like play be a lot easier because you're just like turning off the parts of your brain that are interrupting your ability to do whatever it is you've like for me, whatever it is I think I should be doing that's play or not. So it doesn't feel like work as much as it feels like a unmediated experience. And that's an interesting thing to me. I would like to have more unmediated experiences. But I think because of the world we live in, because I'm a survivor, because I'm a trans person, um, everything gets filtered through many levels of mediation before I get any real understanding of it like I have so many protective barriers around me um and so it's hard to like just have an interaction so I want to make sure I'm under so it's like certain substances change the filter set I guess so or make me less aware of the filter set Mm. yeah yeah or actively turn off the filter set. Yeah. 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 I haven't had like a bad experience where I wake up and be like, what the fuck? So I don't, I don't know what that would be like. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my last questions is what scenes would you say you're a part of now? Hmm. Um, I don't know that I'm very successful at being part of scenes. I like tend to be a person who has a lot of friends in different pockets. Um, and I think I'm like, growing into an adulthood where that feels okay. Um, so like I'm in the Brooklyn queer scene and in a, like Jewish radical scene and um but not like fully I guess I don't I'm like uh not not I move in and out of scenes yeah yeah I like to put together my friends um, like I like to go places that are fun and build community with people I like and those are not always people they're they're often not people who are like part of the same scenes yeah is there a notable um, part of your events that you've been to recently that felt really good mm-hmm. um Well, Pride, I love, always. 
um, especially Pride at Reese Beach and the Dyke March. And um, Karen's Queer Country events. There was just one at Littlefield that was awesome. And I think those have been the big ones recently. I'm trying to think if there's something else. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Queer stuff. <laughs> Is there anything else you can think of right now that you'd like to touch on or anything that you think is really important to be remembered in this interview? Just that, um, there's something about, like, like, my core identities are that I'm, like, working class, trans, Jewish, um, and queer, and there's something, like, missing in a lot of queer and trans communities there's about class analysis both about what um, people can access immediately but also about our histories and sort of like a larger class-based analysis Um, and I think that hurts us because it it separates us off from other um, other queers who were raised poor and working class both in the current and in their in their past and also from all of the like existing working class queers and trans people who are ferocious and awesome and like leading their lives both in big cities and in other places facing a lot of different like things that are related to what we face in cities and also other things that are different because of different contexts um and that it's that i think that class stuff that can anchor us to queer histories and resistance in really powerful ways. I'm thinking about um, anti-Klan organizing in the South, like with Mab Seabest and Dorothy Allison's generation of people and um, the people who I know who are like more keyed into that part of, of queer history are other working class people, other people who grew up working class. And so I, I think I'm just feeling very keenly I guess the, the piece about um, class and classism and how that shapes queer and trans community um, in terms of our understandings of what's happening today and what how that's anchored to what has happened in the past and how that anchors again to what's possible in the future um, I think it's part of partially also a thing that helps us to build robust intersectional communities that are committed to um, combating uh, racism and colonialism and um, uh, Islamophobia that and anti-Semitism as they pop up in our world today in old and new ways both. Um, 
And I think one of the challenges of being trans is that the sort of psychic impact of being trans sometimes leaves me, I know, with limited resources of attending to all of the other stuff that's going on also in the world. And, um, and I'm not sure that we can afford to like be wrapped up only in our own experiences and exhaustions. Um, but it's hard to live in a city like New York where so many of the queer and trans people here are middle-class and rich people, um, and live lives that take for granted the economic burdens of being trans and of living in the city. Um, and I, yeah, I think I want to talk about that here because I think we need to talk about it more in our communities altogether, that there are a lot of working class people kicking around and that we can't take class experience for granted as we're building up uh, our visions of liberation and what liberatedness is. In the Brooklyn queer scene, mm-hmm. The, the parts that you touched into, um, where do you feel very comfortable and mm-hmm. celebrated and appreciated as a working class person? Mm-hmm. And what parts feel alienating or worse? Um, I don't know that there's any one place where I actually feel whole and celebrated as a working class person. Um, I think part of what I value so much about Queer Country Monthly is that um, there I know there are other people who grew up working class, and so I don't feel as alien, Um, although I don't think that it is self-consciously building a multi-class experience. I am part of some communities that are starting to do some strategizing and thinking and organizing and mobilizing around the experience of people who are raised poor and working class, and I'm part of that work. Um, but it is still often in relation to a social and political scene that is very wealthy um, and that assumes wealth. Um, yeah, and so much of my New York life is made up of people who who are middle class at, at least. Um, and that feels very challenging to be like so isolated. Yeah. I think that's also part of the answer to the question about why elders are so important to me. That um, when I'm interacting with elders, I have far more access to people who also grew up working class. I think that's it for my questions. Great. Um, do you have any final words, I suppose? <laughs> no, I'm so glad this is happening. Thank you so much. It is a joy. Thank you. Yeah.